Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to gather as your church. We desire to hear from you tonight. And as we look at what Jesus has told us about loving our enemies and proper response when we are sinned against, I pray for help. Pray for help for myself as I teach. Give me the words to say. Give me what not to say. Keep me from saying it. And would you give to each person listening what they need? Would you be a help to us in these moments together? Thank you for your word. Thank you for clearly giving us what you would have from us as your disciples, Jesus. Help us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5. 38 to 42. Let me read it. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Some weighty words from Jesus. So let's dig in, starting with the first verse, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now before we jump in, let's, let's remember that Jesus here is talking to his disciples You remember, he's on the mountain, he is giving a sermon, and he has called his disciples to himself. So this sermon is to people who are Jesus's. The crowds, yes, are gathered, and there are many, and they are overhearing what is being said, but this sermon is to his disciples. Let's remember that. That's the context. And so to his disciples, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, he has been saying this in several of these passages. You've heard it was said. And what he's saying is, you have heard it said by your rabbis, by your scribes, by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders of your day. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is quoted in Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21, and in Exodus 21, 23 to 25. So this is a quote from the Old Testament. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to show the true meaning of what is said in the law, not what they have heard it was said. Not the common interpretation of the day, but rather what is truly meant by Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. So let me read the context of this quote. I think it's important that we get an Old Testament context when a passage is taken out of it. So Jesus does quote Deuteronomy 29, 21. I'll start at 15 so we get a a context. You ready? A single witness shall not suffice against the person for any crime or for any wrong in correction, or I'm sorry, in connection with any offense that he has committed. So Jesus is saying, God through Moses is saying, a single witness shall not suffice. In other words, we can't just have one witness when someone is in trial. It can't be just one person's word against one person's word. Only on the evidence of two 
witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In other words, on the testimony of two or three people, someone can be charged of some accusation, but not one for one. And isn't it interesting that Jesus picks up on this when he's talking about church discipline? He says, if your brother sins against you, you go against him, you, one-on-one. And if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't see his wrong or her wrong, what do you do? You take another witness with you. And then you confront them together. And if there's no repentance, even in the two together, then you bring them as two or three witnesses in front of who? The church. Some say literally the entire church, but more than likely the leaders of the church, the elders. And they are to then talk to this person all for the purpose of reconciliation and repentance and restoration. That's always, always the goal and end of church discipline. The means is never simply to discipline. The means is discipline. The end is reconciliation and restoration. We don't want people to be living in sin. It's harmful to them and to others, and it's very offensive to God. So we want to issue church discipline for the good of others, for the good of others, not for their punishment, not for their harm. No, it's always for good. And so here, too, the Mosaic system is set up so that there be two or three witnesses when someone is being charged with an offense. Verse 16, listen to this. This is, this is really important. Verse 16, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, it means a false testimony, someone who wants to get somebody on false charges, If a malicious witness arises, then both parties of the dispute shall appear before the Lord. That's the tabernacle at this time. Before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. So they have to stand before the Lord, and they have to stand before the priests, and they have to stand before the judges. The judges shall inquire diligently. They're going to interrogate them. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. That's that's justice. That's what God sees as just. You intended to do him harm? Your intent? You wanted to get him on these false charges? Now, we're going to give you exactly what you were trying to do to him. Whatever it is. If that happened often enough, do you think people are going to bring false charges against other people? Absolutely not. That's dangerous. And you're going to stand before God and then lie in front of the the tabernacle where God's manifest presence dwelt in, I don't want to say physical form, but in a form that was real and there and actual, pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. You're going to go and try to lie on someone so that you can get them in trouble? Well, you're going to get, it's going to come back on you. That would do away with false charges. And then, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Paul quotes that in uh, Corinthians. And the rest shall hear, here's the result, and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And here's our verse. Your eyes shall not pity. He's talking about in 
judging these kinds of cases. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, we could expand this, but we don't have time. In Exodus 21, 23 uh, to, to 25, and you can go there at another time and look at that. But what God is setting up for his, listen, theocracy, where God would be the ruler, the government would be under him. And he says, this is how justice is to happen. If someone takes an eye, an eye is to be taken. If someone takes a foot, the payback is a foot. If a life is taken then a life shall be required. This is God under a theocracy giving justice. Okay? We're not under a theocracy. We are under magistrates and courts and police and the judicial system. But in this context, God is the one laying down the societal structure and the rules, and he's saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. Now, this is interesting, because what this looks like, you could say, that's, that's cruel, but is it? Is it cruel if someone murders to then require what they took? Or is that just? Well, it's not mercy, of course, but it's just. Mercy would be giving them a life sentence. Mercy would be letting them live. Justice would be proportionate. You took a life your life is now going to be taken. God said this much to Moses, or, uh, Noah in the Noetic Covenant. Because why? Man is made in the image of God. As the most valuable being on the planet Earth was harmed, and that life was taken in the image of God, so it must be redeemed by another life being taken, the one who took it. Now, this command did this. It curbed greater retaliation. That's actually what this is for. It curbed a cycle of vengeance and violence. What do you mean? Well, when Cain killed Abel, God did not wipe Cain out, but rather he banished him. Let's read that. It's in Genesis 4, 13 to 15. You remember Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is jealous of his brother and God's acceptance of his brother. And so he maliciously smacks him in the head, assumingly with a rock or something, and kills him and buries him. And God knows and says, where's your brother? And the famous, am I my brother's keeper? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. And so God curses him and banishes him. And Cain is fearful of his punishment being too great. Meanwhile, it's mercy that God didn't wipe Cain out immediately. Life for life. Instead, he has mercy. But Cain complains that his punishment is too great. So let's read it. He says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Genesis 4.13 Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And he was a farmer. He was a, a, a man of the land. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain's, Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Sevenfold? Yes, sevenfold. It's a warning. It's a protection for Cain. 
And the, the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Now that's interesting. What did that mark look like? I don't know. Maybe he had like a big scar down his face or on his eye. Maybe he looked like Scarface. I, I don't know what he looked like, but it was a mark that deterred people from attacking him. He probably looked pretty frightening. He looked cursed because he was. Now, when we move just a few verses down, we see this, you harm me, I'm going to take even more from you. Vengeance. Listen to this. You ever heard of Lemech? Lemech takes two wives. And Genesis pauses to tell us about Lemech. In verse 23 and 24, Lemech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lemech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for what? Wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's is seventy-sevenfold. Wow. Seventy-sevenfold? So someone smacks the guy and he says, you're dead, and he kills him. But that's not proportionate justice, is it? And so, see, for God, but we see this in our culture, right? You disrespect me, and what am I going to do? I'm going to hunt you down. Or you kill me, now I'm going to come back. My peeps are going to come back and not only get you, but you and your family too. See, this is 77-fold. It's vengeance. It's not just justice. Now, we're going to talk about is that justice in a minute. But not just justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, life for life, but lives for life, multiple feet for one foot. You take my hand, I'm going to take your entire body. You see, this command of Moses actually curbed vengeance. It created justice. It said, if, if you take a tooth, tooth, you got to pay back exactly what was taken. And Jesus here, listen, is talking about personal revenge. Okay? So this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this verse 38, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was taken out of the justice system, if you will, of the theocracy of Israel, and it was now being used on an individual retaliation basis. Code of the streets. You take from me, I'm going to get my revenge from you. Vengeance. This is not taught, Jesus here is not talking about police using the, the force that they've been given by the, the state. Okay, Romans 13, 1-7 is very clear that the sword has been given to the government for a reason. Jesus, listen, is not here talking about self-defense. He's not talking about um, you helping someone who's in trouble, who's being attacked. No, he's talking about here you being personally assailed. You being personally attacked. But wait. In 30, 39, he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil? Now, now see, on a, on a glance reading of that, it almost sounds horrific, doesn't it? It sounds like it, Jesus is saying, if someone breaks into your house with the intent to rape your wife and your daughters, you just you don't resist them. You just back up and say, go ahead. Is that what he's saying? Don't resist the one who's evil. If somebody is coming at your loved one with a gun 
and they're about to get them, and you see this happening, is Jesus saying, hey, don't resist the one that's evil. Just pull back. Just cease and desist. Is that what he's saying? Is Jesus saying that if you witness a crime, a, a purse snatcher grabs someone's purse, and they're running right past you, is Jesus saying you just back up and don't do anything? You don't resist the one? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that, because that would contradict a numerous amount of other scriptures. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that if if someone steals your vehicle, which some among us have had that happen, is Jesus saying if someone breaks into your house, which some among us have had that happen, is he saying don't pursue calling 911, don't file a police report, don't try to get your car back, don't try to get the, the stolen property back, you just... You just back up, and you resist the one who is evil. No, you don't resist the one who is evil. Does that sound right to you? No, it doesn't, and that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. He tells us in the very next verse. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone slaps you... In the face. And let's go even further. If you're right-handed and someone is going to slap you facing me on the right cheek, how is that going to be done? How is that possible? Wouldn't it be kind of weird to be like... (laughs) No, it's an insult. (laughs) Backhand to the face. Now, when you slap someone, unless you're Kimbo Slice, you're not knocking them out. Right? Unless you're Mike Tyson and his... Glory days. You're not knocking anyone out with a slap. It's an insult. It's disrespect to be slapped in the face. Okay, and often, and even in our culture, when you're disrespected, what what do you do immediately? Blood pressure goes up, and the vengeance principle that Jesus is preaching against kicks in. Now you want to strangle, choke to the ground, and you want to ground and pound now with elbows and knees, and you want to see blood and broken bones and noses. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound like a tooth for a tooth. What's it? You see what he's saying here? Jesus is saying, if you're disrespected, what are you to do? Turn to him the other also. He says, if someone disrespects you, You don't retaliate. That's what he's saying. That sound hard? That sound impossible? How many of you, when you're disrespected, you want vengeance? You either want to fly back with words or fly back with hands or 77-fold that thing and make them never disrespect you again? Like Lemek? And see, what Jesus is here saying is don't, don't pay back insult for insult, but rather you absorb. You absorb. If someone disrespects you, you turn the other cheek. Now, what he's not saying is you just let people slap you around and beat you up. That's not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't advocate criminal activity. 
Okay? So if you're a woman and a man is coming at you and he's trying to slap you, you don't say, here's my left. No, you get out your mace and you spray him. Or if you know Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you get him in a move and you threaten to break his arm while you're calling 911 with the other hand. See what I'm saying? That's not what Jesus is saying. He, Jesus is not advocating for the criminals. What he's saying is you, on a personal level, if someone disrespects you by slapping you, you're not to retaliate with what they gave you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, foot for a foot, life for a life, and you're not to retaliate at all. Again, he's not advocating you're for the criminal or you allow criminal activity to take place. He's saying when you're personally insulted in a non-criminal way, that's what he's saying. When someone disses you, what are you going to do? Your hand's going to fly? Is your fingers going to fly on Facebook? Are you going to go and assault them with words to all your friends and family members? Jesus is saying, no, you turn the other cheek. That's, that's a pretty hefty command, Jesus. Yeah, it is. So this is personal insult. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you, wow, and take your tunic, how many of you have a tunic? Gus has a tunic, can I borrow it? Okay, sweet. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, we'll, we'll be passing out tunics with the logo on it next week for all of you. If anyone takes your tunic, notice, sue you and take your tunic. So, so the context here is someone's taking you to court to take an article of clothing. He says, rather, do this. Give them your cloak as well. Really? Now remember what Jesus said previously, just a few verses ahead of this. Remember, he said, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So someone's accusing you. While you are going with him to court, or her to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus advocates justice, but he says, listen, if someone wants to sue you for your tunic, make it right before you even get to court and give them, the, give them your coat as well. Like, Bless them if they're trying to take from you because you have offended them in some way. Do you see that you're being sued? There's a reason you're being sued. It's because you did something. No one takes people to court for no... Well, that's not true. Some people do actually take people to court for no reason at all. But he's saying, when someone is trying to get at you in this way, bless them. Again, he, he's not saying if someone is coming to you trying to steal your coat, you just say, here, you might as well take my $130 Nike Air Maxes too. He's not advocating criminal activity. Because listen, if they took your tunic and then they took your Air Maxes, they're probably going to go and take someone else's too. He's not saying we should let criminals get away with crime. Never. What he is saying is if someone's trying to sue you, the reason is, is because you did something that you're being sued for more than likely. And rather, you should just settle it with them and give them more than what they're asking. 
Give them more than what they're asking. Make it right. Shock them by your generosity as a disciple of Jesus. Rather than trying to countersue them and get them for all they have and how dare you sue me? I'm going to sue the pants off of you. No, Jesus says just give them what they're looking for and then give them more. Bless them. Shock them by showing them that you're my disciple. That's a hefty command. My goodness. Then in verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this is interesting for us in 2017, 2017. Like, what do you mean force to go with you one mile? Hey, go with me one mile. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll go with you too. What does that even mean? So you see, in this day when Jesus was giving this sermon about 2,000 years ago, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. And the Roman Guards, centurions, soldiers had the legal right to force you under their rule to go with them 1,000 paces and carry a load. So if a Roman soldier was walking past you and he had a load of gear or food or whatever and he saw you walking, he was legally able to say, you, 1,000 paces, you carry this. And you, had, you could do nothing. You resist him, you're in trouble. So they were legally allowed to force you to go, the translators say, one mile. And Jesus is saying, rather than you resist because you're angry, because they're just unjustly making you work and carry their load, he says, shock them and say, I'll I'll carry it too for you. What? You'll carry it too? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to help you in that way. What? You're weird, man. Give me that back. That would just weird out any soldier because that's not what they're used to. They're not used to getting grace. They're used to getting murmured, muttering, grumbling obedience because they don't want to get in trouble. All the while praying God strike their teeth and smash their heads You know, that's the kind of prayer that's being prayed while they're going one mile. Jesus is saying, no, you as my disciple, you offer double what they're forcing you to do. You remember Jesus when he was after his mock trial and he's being beaten and he comes out and and he can barely carry the crossbeam. It's so heavy because he's already taken so much of a beating. Uh, We assume he falls and he cannot carry the crossbeam. And what happens? Simon of Cyrene. Uh, a passerby. You carry his cross for him. And Simon obeys. Now, I don't know if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, and I've only seen it twice purposefully because it's so gruesome and it's hard to watch. But in that particular scene, though, you know, they're using their artistic license, how gospel of Simon of Cyrene to look at Jesus dripping with blood, barely able to do a push-up, he says, you just remember who's the criminal here. Remember that? You remember who's the guilty one here. This is what Simon was saying to the soldiers. In other words, I'm innocent. He's the guilty one. Just remember that. I'll carry his execution beam, but you remember who's the guilty one. And how ironic. The not guilty one 
was the one who was being executed. It's it's a picture of substitution. Here, Simon of Cyrene, the guilty one. And I'm not sure if Mel Gibson even intended this. Maybe he did. But it's a picture of, here, Simon of Cyrene's the guilty one who deserved to not only bear the cross but be nailed to it. And here's the not guilty one, Jesus. And he's pointing out an irony saying, he's the guilty one, just remember that. It's a picture of the gospel. It's that Jesus took our place in our guilt. So here, here's the account, Matthew 27, 32 to 33. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, you know the rest. The idea is that you can shock these people by your grace, by showing them grace. That, that's the point here. So if you're slapped, it's expected that you would slap back or multiply the insult and retaliate and fight. But if you show grace and extend mercy, it's weird. What's going on here? This isn't what I've seen before. But see, as a marked disciple of Jesus, we are to live as he has treated us. He he did not slap us when we slapped him. When we took from him our lives, all of us, and refused to give him thanks, even for a minute, acting as if we were small G God, supplying our own oxygen and our own energy and giving us our own gifts and talents and giving us our own opportunities, he didn't take from us, rather he gave. Jesus went 33 years for us, not just an extra mile. 33 years not breaking the law even once, not even an attitude, but joyful obedience. And so in 42, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now this is an interesting text, okay? Here's what he's pointing to. He's pointing to you being generous. Be a generous disciple. But what he's not advocating here, I don't believe, is for you to enable people to continue in their patterns of sin. And that's often what we experience in our culture. Somebody is an alcoholic and they're begging for money and you know they're going to go and use it to buy a fifth or a cheap bottle of Nikolai for $11.99 half gallon, or they're going to go buy some Mad Dog 2020, or you know they're going to go buy a dime bag or something, and you know it. Okay, He's not advocating that you support what he forbids. He's he's not saying there's, there's people who won't work out there. They're able, they're capable, they just refuse And we know that Thessalonians says, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. We're not to enable those people to not live according to what God has clearly revealed. That's not what he's saying. In fact, here's Spurgeon. We love Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, be generous. A miser is no follower of Jesus. So if you're characterized by miserliness, you're stingy, you're greedy, you will hold and hoard, you're, you're not a disciple. Okay? It's one thing if you're in survival mode and you can barely pay the lights. Okay, that's different. But you can still be generous in other ways than money. 
You can give of your time. You can give of the gifts you've been given as far as your talents and abilities. Okay, you could be generous in more ways than giving of your money. And you, you who are part of the gospel-centered communities, you know this. This is what we're learning. Spurgeon says, A miser is no follower of Jesus. Discretion is to be used in our giving, lest we encourage idleness and beggary. <laughs> beggary. Spurgeon says, no beggary here. Not bakery. He likes bakeries. No beggary here. But the general rule is, give to him who asks you. Sometimes a loan may be more useful than a gift. So sometimes it's, it's better for you than to say, here, just take it. Than to say, I need you to pay me back. No interest. Because it encourages them to be responsible with what you've given them. Oftentimes, I've given people uh, a lot of stuff. And because it was free to them, it had no value to them. And so they just didn't read it or they threw it away or they just didn't cost me anything. I could care less. And though I've seen that happen with my own eyes, I still will give people things, hoping that they will take advantage of what I've given them. But if you've paid for something with your own money, you are more likely to value it. Amen? If it costs you something, you're more likely to value it, to use it, to appreciate it, and not treat it as trash, because it costs you nothing. As a general rule. So Spurgeon says, sometimes a loan may be more helpful, more useful than a gift. He says, do not refuse it to those who will make right use of it. That's the key. See, there are people who are genuinely in need. And you know that they will make right use of what you give them. Jesus says, and Spurgeon says, be generous. Give. Open-handedly. Don't be a miser. Don't be greedy. Don't hoard. Don't hold on to. Give to those who will make right use of it. He says, these precepts are not meant for fools. What do you mean, Spurgeon? They are set before us in the teaching of a philanthropic common sense to guide us. Hey, now, that's complicated language. Philanthropists give. And he says, a philanthropic common sense. In other words, you need to be wise when you're giving away resources. Don't be foolish. Don't just throw money into the air and say, I'm obeying Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, giving to those who need. No, Spurgeon says, be wise in your giving. And I think Jesus expects this much because Jesus knew the Proverbs just as much, if not better, than we do. It's the Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. Okay? Our spirit is to be one of readiness to help the needy by gift or loan. And we are not exceedingly likely to err by excess in this direction. Hence, the baldness of the command. And I didn't read that wrong. Baldness. In other words, it's just out there. It's plain. We have to qualify it. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so what is being said here is, if there's a genuine need, and you know them, you supply that need. And sometimes it's better for their sake that you say, I need you to pay me back. Sometimes it's better for you to just say, this is for you, it's a gift. 
But whatever the case, Jesus says, you be generous. You give to the one who begs from you. Now, for those of you who like to read, some of you are readers in here. Some of you are listeners, so this is great. There's a fantastic book that I've read that is really clear on all of this giving stuff. It's called When Helping Hurts. Anyone ever read that book, When Helping Hurts? Okay, I encourage all of you, if this verse makes you feel uneasy, verse 42, you know, you're like, I've given to people and I've watched them go into the liquor store right afterward. You need to read this book. Because there is a way that we can give to people and think we're being generous, but we're actually hurting them in the process and hurting us. So this is a fantastic book. It's really nuanced. It's really specific. And it deals with third world countries and foreign missions and giving to the poor in our local neighborhoods. And it's really, really helpful. And it's on audio. So you can get it on iTunes. You can get it on ChristianAudio.com. You can get it on Audible. You can, you can listen to it while you drive to work. And have it done in about a week and you're drive back and forth. When helping hurts. I would recommend it for all of you. When helping hurts. Okay, let's, let's wrap it up. We don't want to read this out of the context of the entirety of the scriptures. And so I want to bring in Romans 12, 17 to 21 to put beside this because this is good biblical interpretation. And I'm not going to exposit Romans 12, um, but I do want to put it beside it quickly. Okay, so Romans chapter 12, 17 to 21. This is Paul. And I think he's building or going off of exactly what Jesus says here. He says, repay no one evil for evil. You see, there's vengeance, revenge, repayment. You're going to get your justice. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Honorable in the sight of all. Of all, there's a, there's a person in here who I'm not going to name. Um, he, he had his house broken into. And he felt like God gave him a knowledge of something was going to happen. And so just a week or two or a month before, he had a, a security cameras installed in his house. And lo and behold, it got broken into. And they caught the kid who did it, young kid, not that old. He was in his teens. And rather, my friend did show up in the court to, to meet the kid and to talk to him. And you know what they did? They didn't say, we condemn you. <laughs> they, they offered him a desire to get better. They, they, they said, we desire for you to get on the right path. There was forgiveness, in other words, is what I'm trying to say. That's the honorable thing to do. Yes, the criminal should get caught. Yes, they should know what they've done and be responsible for what they've done, and justice should happen. But our response, what should it be? Forgiveness. We should forgive those who wrong us. We don't seek to get repayment, especially ourselves. We forgive. And so Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What's honorable in the sight of everybody here? He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you. Now, we can't control what other people do, right? So like, I can seek reconciliation, I can seek your good, I can seek a relationship with you, I can pursue you, pursue you, pursue you, and if you stiff-arm me, 
which I've had done to me, that's all I can do. Like, I can't tie you up, put you in the back of my Nissan, set you on my couch, brew you coffee, get you a biscuit, and then untie you and say, we're going to talk right now. Enjoy the coffee. If you dip it in the coffee, it tastes even better. Like, you can't do that. What you can do is you can pursue them, and if they don't respond, Paul says, and Jesus says, that's all you can do. But listen, here's my question to you. Have you gone that far? Have you gone that far, or have you slammed the door shut and said, never? As far as it depends on you, are you seeking to live at peace with all men, even those who've wronged you. In other words, there are people who've wronged you. Have you forgiven them, or are you holding them in debt? What that doesn't mean is we take criminals, forgive them, and then let them do more criminal activity to us. That's not what that means. What it means is we, as best as we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to live at peace with everyone. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And the first of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So not only are are we at peace with God, but then that should work its way out into earthly relationships. We should be peaceable people, not people wrecking and causing more harm and disrupting more relationships everywhere we go. We should be ones seeking to reconcile as we've been reconciled. We should be ones seeking to get in between broken relationships and say, how can I help you repair this and mend this? How can I help you forgive? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all or live peaceably with all. 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Man, what if everyone just lived that out? Imagine the 7 billion people in the world right now just obeying those few words. Let me read it again. (laughs) Beloved, Never avenge yourselves. All the wars would just cease immediately. All conflicts would just die out. But see, there's this cycle of vengeance. There's this cycle of repayment. There's this cycle of, I'm going to get mine. But for the disciples, we are not to avenge ourselves. So though we love the Avenger movies, they're superheroes, you're not. As much as you love Thor and Iron Man, you're not them. So don't avenge yourselves. Let them avenge you. Okay? Never avenge yourselves. But what? But leave it to the wrath of God. Now here we have the wrath of God seen as a positive. Most people reject the wrath of God and they say, that's a horrible attribute. How can a loving God be a God of wrath? But here's the question. If God wasn't a God of wrath, how could he be loving? Like, how could he let all this injustice happen in the world and not be angry and then not promise it will all be made right and my wrath will be aimed at it eventually? God couldn't be a God of love if he wasn't also a God of wrath. And so we need to see the wrathful God as a beautiful attribute. Not an ugly one that we need to suppress and push and put in the closet. God is love. If God is love, then he has to be wrathful as well. Because if he's not mad about you receiving some injustice, then he's not loving, is he? But see, God's wrath is the other side of his love. 
And so you can't have one without the other. He's not mad for no reason. He's mad because there's injustice in his world that he created without injustice. And listen, Paul says this, here's how, here's how you can never avenge yourselves. You can wait for God's wrath and let him get vengeance for you. And trust me, his vengeance will be just and exact, and he knows exactly what they deserve. And if he doesn't save them, they will get what they deserve for eternity. It's called hell. Now listen, if God gave you what you deserved, justice, you and I would be in hell forever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm never dies. But see, instead, he said, I'll take your justice for you. He gets what justice demands, the penalty for your sin and the penalty for my sin. But be sure of this, friends. God is a just God, and his justice will be served. Either Jesus absorbs the justice of God, or the perpetrator will absorb the justice of God forever in hell. And that's good news, believe it or not. You say, how could that be good news? So listen, let's imagine, let's imagine right now that God never punishes sin, and because he's a good and loving God, he just lets all criminal activity, no matter how heinous it is, just go free, and he lets them all into heaven. All of a sudden, we're right back where we started. We're right back here on earth. But see, what Jesus does is he takes former criminals like me who would take from you, who would disrespect you, who would cheat you and slap you in the face. I've done all those things. And rather than God giving me justice and making me pay forever for what I've done, he said, I'll treat Jesus like he did everything you did, Chris. Chris, I'll I'll treat Jesus as if he stole all that you stole, as if he disrespected all the people you disrespected, as if he unjustly accused people as you did and was immoral like you. And and I'll treat you, Chris, like you lived the perfect life of Jesus. (laughs) See, See, that's justice because sin still gets punished. That's love because God, in his love, takes my... What about you? Listen, are you storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment? Are you going to continue to live in sin and oppose God and stiff arm him when he says to you, my wrath towards your sin, my justice that will be executed? Are you going to let that justice fall on Jesus and absorb that wrath for you? Or are you going to stiff arm him until judgment day? when you receive the just penalty for your sin. What's, what's it going to be? Man, I, I just plead with you, let Jesus take justice in your place so that you can then give vengeance and revenge over to the wrath of God and say, no wrong will go unrighted. Not even one. Either Jesus will pay for it or they will in the end. That's, that's how we cannot retaliate, guys. We cannot retaliate because Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Lemek says, 77 times I'll repay. God says, leave it to me, I'll repay. That's how you cannot retaliate. Again, Jesus is not saying, let criminals go scot-free and don't pursue legal action and don't call the authorities. He's not saying any of that. He's not advocating that we let crime slide. What he's saying is you should not take vengeance. You should not seek repayment. You should not be Batman in the middle of the night getting revenge. As much as I love Batman. To the contrary, verse 20, here's what you should do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Wow. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is how you can overcome evil. When evil does not have its effect on you, because you respond in good, it has lost. You see, Jesus, when he was slapped and punched and said, prophesy who hits you, he didn't, like Benny Hen, wave his hand and they all drop over. But not in some weird, demonic way. Dead. Jesus could have been like all of you. Dead. Just taking their lives right there. Instead, he, he allowed them to slap him in his face. He allowed himself to get punched in the face with blindfolds on. and He allowed a crown of thorns to be put on his head and smacked with a blunt object. And he allowed himself to be ridiculed and mocked. And, and he didn't retaliate. For you. For me. Instead, what was his response? Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So what should your response be to those who disrespect you and those who are your quote-unquote enemies? We're going to go here next week in great detail. It should be to pray for them. You overcome evil with good by praying for them and praying for their blessing and praying for their salvation and praying for their, their goodness. Listen, the only way you can do that is if you forgive them. It's very hard to pray for people who've wronged you and you're still holding them in debt. But you can pray for people whom you've forgiven. And you can pray for God to help you forgive them. And you can remember that, man, how can I hold someone in debt when God doesn't hold me in debt? How can I not forgive when I have been forgiven so much more? How can I not let this wrong go when God has let all my wrongs go? How can this be? And so we remind ourselves of the gospel and all that has been done for us. And we, we literally overcome evil with good. Isn't this what Jesus himself did? He conquers us not by forcing us, but rather by taking our place. He says, I'll overcome by losing, not by winning. But he did win. He won by losing. It's backwards than we think. But it's the way of the cross, and it's the gospel, and it's how he's going to redeem the entire universe. He won by losing. That's why in Revelation, when we see him as a lion, he's also seen as a lamb, slain. 
So yeah, he's a conquering king. He's the king of kings. But he won, not by wiping everyone out, but by giving up himself to conquer his enemies. And listen, you and I were his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's how we can do good to our enemies, is because we realize how good God's been to us when we were his enemies. And now, you know what? We're going to sing about this. Though we were enemies, he's made us his friends now. And not just friends, beyond friends, family. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God, the creator of the universe. We're brothers and sisters of the one who John said in 1 John, without him nothing was made that has been made. We have the spirit of adoption in us. The very presence of God is power to do all that Jesus is commanding of us right now as his disciples. So we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done to make all this possible. So last thing, we don't do this to be accepted. We do this because we already are. We do this because it's already been done in Christ to us. All of this. So let's pray and let's celebrate what Jesus has done by taking communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your wrath. We thank you that you are angry at sin and injustice. And you promise in Romans 12 that vengeance is yours and you will repay. And we are to leave vengeance to you and not take it into our own hands. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we navigate living in a fallen world, seeking to bless and not hurt and to forgive instead of hold people in debt and to leave room for your wrath or Jesus taking justice for someone who's harmed and hurt us. Father, would you give us the power to pray for our enemies and to seek to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us? These are hard sayings, but Father, by your Spirit, by the Spirit of Jesus, we can do this. Let us remember all that Jesus has done for us so that we can then go and do as it has been done to us. Help us, we pray. Remind us afresh of what Jesus has done as we take communion together. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said?